This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for November 9th, 2017, the one year and one day edition. I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura. I'm alone in a Washington, D.C. studio. That's because John Dickerson of CBS's Face the Nation is... Where are you, John? I'm in Cambridge, where there's a school called Harvard University. I'm near the green pastures of Harvard University, but I did not go there. Um... (laughs) Let's just establish that clearly from the start. And that other voice is, of course, the New York Times' is Emily, New York Times Magazine's, excuse me, Emily Bazelon. Hello, Emily. Where are hey, you? David. Are you near the campus of, a, um, of, of an Ivy League university? Well, no. I'm in Brooklyn, uh, which I love dearly, but is not an Ivy League university. Last night I was at NYU for a very nice event put on by the Brennan Center. So that's like kind of counts. Um, I guess it does. On this week's GabFest, the Democrats wallop Republicans in Virginia, New Jersey, even Georgia on Tuesday night. What does this herald for 2018? Then it's been 366 days since the 2016 election. What is worse or better in the country than you expected or we expected? How remarkable has the Trump administration been? What kind of shape are we in politically? We'll try to answer all those questions in just 14 minutes. Then Congress has put the biggest tech companies, Facebook, Google, and Twitter in particular, on the spot over Russian meddling in the 2016 election. What should be done about regulating or not regulating big tech when it comes to politics and propaganda? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And we are starting to collect conundrums for our upcoming live show in Boston, our annual conundrum show. Uh, you can email us at gabfest at slate.com with a conundrum. You can write us at uh, facebook.com slash gabfest on our Facebook page. You can tweet at us at, at slategabfest. Send us your great conundrums. You've already sent us a whole bunch of good ones, but send us more. And even better yet, come to the live show on December 6th at the Wilbur Theater at 7.30 p.m. You can get tickets at slate.com slash live. And we have a special guest, you know, you know, you've heard They Might Be Giants will be opening for us. They're also going to be playing during the show. Uh, I had the just the such the rock and roll fandom pleasure of just talking over the set list with John from They Might Be Giants earlier this week. So can't wait to see them and you at our live show in Boston on December 6th, slate.com slash live. There are a few tickets left. Democrats had their first good night in a year on Tuesday with Democratic candidates whomping Republicans in the few odd-year election races that take place around the country. Uh, notably, Phil Murphy easily took back the New Jersey governor's seat by crushing Chris Christie's uh, former lieutenant governor. That was a kind of gimme. I feel like you could have run a kind of wet bag of rags and it would have beaten the Republican in that state. And more notably, Virginia surged incredibly hard for Democrats. Ralph Northam crushed Republican Ed Gillespie to become the next governor. Democrats may have flipped as many as 17 of the 100 seats in the House of Delegates, and which would recapture majority in the House of Delegates. They, were, they had only 34 seats before the election. They may have as many as 51 or even 52 by the time the recounts are done. And that also included the election of the first transgender official to a state legislature, Danica Rome, uh, was elected to the House of Delegates in Virginia. There were also wins in unlikely places in Georgia, in uh, mayoral races in New Hampshire, um, Washington State, the state legislature is now fully in control of the Democrats. Essentially, almost anywhere a Democrat could win on Tuesday night, they did win. So how big a deal was Tuesday, John? It's an off-off year election. Uh, I think it was a really uh, big deal uh, because of all, because of the sweeping nature of the victory that you talked about. Um, so it's a big deal, just period. 
anytime you get that kind of a clear signal across many different races, it's a big deal. You don't have to do as much uh, backbending to convince yourself that it has ramifications for other races or for the shape of politics when you have that kind of consistent signal coming in different places. So that's a big deal just in terms of our current political moment. For the Democrats, it's a particularly big deal because they just spent the last week um, having this internal, really dead-end feeling fight about the 2016 race, just a very backwards-looking fight uh, kicked off in part by, uh, or maybe entirely by Donna Brazil's book. And so what this ratified for Democrats was two big things. One, the really biggest thing, which is that in off-year elections where Democratic voters don't usually turn out, the question was, would the antipathy towards Donald Trump, which became a value proposition. In other words, it's just I don't it's not I don't like his policies. It's I object to him at the very core of who I am and who I identify myself as. Was that going to be something that would motivate Democrats to go out and vote um, so that they could overcome their traditional off year issues? The answer to that appears to very much be yes. And it appears to be yes across the entire Democratic constituency. So millennial voters, voters of color, and edu- college-educated voters in the Virginia race, uh, Democrats had won between 42 and 45% of college-educated whites in each of their uh, victories in the state. So that's Obama in 12, McAuliffe in 13, Warner in 14, and, and Clinton in 16. So that's between 42 and 45. Northam got 51% of college-educated whites. So that is a signal that the Democratic Party coalition does respond to. And and Northam was not a, uh, you know, was a kind of a bland candidate, had some stumbles, um, which makes the signal seem even stronger. Uh, And then finally, and I'll just shut up, but finally, obviously, this sends signals to Republicans running, and we can talk about those, but I'll shut up now. So there are two interpretations from the point of view of the Republicans of Tuesday night. One is that Trumpism without Trump is not going to work outside of deep red states, that it's become too toxic. And another is that Ed Gillespie lost by not fully embracing Donald Trump. That, of course, was Trump's own spin on it. Steve Bannon has been like all over the airwaves everywhere saying that Gillespie was a creature of the swamp, that his past as this very mainstream candidate meant that his efforts to sort of embrace some of Trump's immigration and uh, race baiting. That's not how Bannon puts it, but that's how I'd put it, that that um, didn't work because people didn't see it as sincere. And of course, he didn't. Gillespie didn't campaign with Trump. So which of those like clearly Bannon and Trump are pushing back against the first narrative, which is everywhere. It doesn't seem crazy to me, though, that Gillespie did seem fake to people that he wouldn't be able to galvanize the Trump base in the same way. As a candidate, you know, who really like drinks from the Donald Trump golden faucet. And then I wonder if, well, but would that candidate be able to win win in a swing state anyway? I mean, is the problem here for people like Trump and Bannon that this turns out to be a relatively narrow way of attracting voters? Right. Because Virginia almost nominated a Trumpish. That's right. Person in, in Corey Stewart, who is the person who Gillespie beat in the Republican primary. And I don't think I, th- I think you would be hard pressed to say that Stewart would have outperformed Gillespie in this election. I think Stewart would have would have done even worse. So I think it's a very hard trick to pull off in states that aren't deep red, Emily. But I hope uh, for the sake of of uh, Trump's defeat that Trump continues to push this and the Republicans are stupid enough to keep trying to do it. Well, I think that I, the, the Northam victory was so big. I think your point is right, David, which is. Even if uh, the more Bannon-like candidate had been, uh, Corey Stewart had been able to win the primary, could he have made up that massive deficit? And that deficit was created because of this antipathy towards President Trump, which presumably a Corey Stewart candidate would have exacerbated because he would have brought the president into the state. Um, So I don't think that, um, that theory holds, but the fact that there is an ongoing debate about this means that the signal sent to all other Republicans running is very unclear. And so what, how, where do you go? What do you do if you're a Republican in a, in a state where things are up for the grabs or if you're a House member in a suburban district where the suburban vote just came out in force against Donald Trump? So 
one of the interesting things about the Virginia race again was that Gillespie and the Republicans performed extremely well in rural and white areas. They overperformed in rural and white areas in southwestern Virginia in particular. Republican candidates did incredibly well. And so just to dig into that question, John, with uh, an electorate this divided, what is it that statewide candidates are going to have to do in states which are relatively purple in a state like a, a Missouri? Right. Um, not in, I think in, a, in an Alabama or Mississippi, this is not that much of an issue because. Although it's going to be interesting to see this Roy Moore race. Right. But anyway, yes, yeah. of course. So uh, that's yeah, that's the question. Um because again, if if Gillespie did well in the rural areas, if he did well in traditional Trump areas, then a more Trump than Trump candidate is not going to do. You can only get so much of the election out of those areas. Um, and so, what you are flirting with here, if this is true, is the idea that politics is reverting to what some people would say would be reverting to form, which is that there is not enough of a Trump coalition to defeat the you know rise of the democratic coalition that what happened in 2016 was that basically Donald Trump goosed his uh, turnout as high as it probably could go and he ran against a very weak candidate so the conditions are now different now again as you point out what do you do in Missouri it is a constant question every day for candidates do they what are they going to do relative to Donald Trump? And if you're Democrats, the reason you like that is that your message is actually quite clean, which is you make it about Donald Trump and Donald Trump wants to make it about Donald Trump. Whereas if you're a Republican, you want to try and make it a local race with enough Donald Trump that you are able to turn out his base. Emily, one of the heartening things, I think, for anybody watching this left, right, center is that there was a series of new candidates drawn into politics as the the way you want it to happen was that there are people who were galvanized by the election of 2016 decide to enter politics and run races. And I think I saw a statistic that 31 people who had been kind of drawn in by um, anti-Trump activism ended up running and winning on Tuesday, which is a pretty significant number. But among the Democratic victors, there's a tremendous amount of diversity, a lot of uh, first-time women candidates, Danica Rome, the first transgender uh, state elected official or, or um, uh, in the state legislature. There was a Sikh mayor elected in Hoboken. Uh, what does that tell us about the both the diversity of the Democratic coalition, but also this new involvement in politics? Well, I mean, it's really heartening if you are part of the resistance or just part of either party at a moment of fomenting change, the sense that like new people will come in with their energy and decide to enter politics. One of the problems in the last you know decade or so has been our fear that political life has become so unpleasant and unforgiving that good people aren't going to want to roll up their sleeves and become candidates. So now we have like on from Democrats a really good response to that. And presumably it will be galvanizing for 2018. I mean, the other thing is, it looks to me like the future in the sense that turnup was up with millennials and millennials are going to overtake boomers as a proportion of the electorate by, I think, like either 2020 or 2022. And so there's just a shift happening here, um, an openness to lots of different kinds of people and, you know, not in the sort of bluest parts of the country either. And that's I mean, that's just got to be a hopeful thing in terms of like the polyglot uh, open nature of the country. What, John, do you make of the the victory? So there was victories in state uh, legislature seats in Georgia, uh, a Trumpy district in Michigan went to Democrats. The Medicaid expansion in Maine went strongly, was strongly endorsed by voters. Uh, the mayoral election in what was the New Hampshire town. There were a couple of Florida mayoral elections that went to Democrats. Why in these relatively um, Republican areas or Trumpish areas uh, do you think this, this happened? Well, I want to be real careful about um, – drawing too broad a uh, conclusion because I haven't actually looked into all, you know, what happened in the Manchester mayor's race that um, uh, that worked here. But I think the signal that gets sent from all those different disparate places, the one unifying theme is the leader of the opposite party has a 37.5 percent 
approval rating. And that, as you pointed out when you mentioned the 31 people who won, who've just entered politics as a part of the Trump resistance, the energy in the system that has led to these results wasn't just turnout energy on election day, that there are things that President Trump put in motion, and we see some of the other big forms in politics moving as well, that are a reaction to his presidency. So many more Democrats running for offices all up and down the ballot as an act of opposition to the president and also just revitalization of their own uh, feelings about a certain brand of politics. Because the way the country is split now, all, all this stuff goes to a, in, you know, an, a reaffirmation of a, di- a very different kind of worldview. And when you have a stark alternative like the president, it excites those who have an, a different worldview to go and fight for what they believe in. So all their energy doesn't have to be in opposition of the president. It's just that the president makes them want to get out and fight for what they believe in. Uh, and so that gets candidates. It gets people uh, excited and energized well before Election Day. And the president is, in a sense, under this theory, providing with each new tweet turnout mechanisms for those people who have who feel this opposition to him. So that would be, you know, my first cut at this, uh, just based on the disparate nature of those outcomes. And you have in Maine an interesting thing developing, which is that the governor, LePage, says that he might not basically listen to the will of the voters on the Medicaid expansion. Which is nuts. Um, can I say one more thing about that, too, which I'm interested in? You know, now it seems like, oh, it was so obvious that Ralph Northam was going to win. He won by nine points, like foregone conclusion. But last week, it seemed like the polls were all over the place. Like, who knew? And one thing I was really wondering about was whether all the efforts to turn out um, Northam voters were going to also turn out Gillespie supporters that, you know, if you see the other team gearing up and practicing extra hard for the big game, like you respond and do that, too. And that doesn't seem to have worked or to have happened. And I think that's really interesting. It suggests that the Trump kind of turnout push for its own base is not like an as, as easy a button to push. Just to build on that, and we uh, we have to be humble about what election uh, exit polls tell us, especially since there's uh, new reporting and thinking um, from Center for American Progress on the size of the white working class vote in the 2016 election that's quite different than the exit polls. But having said that, on this question of Trumpism versus President Trump, Gillespie obviously ran that ad about MS-13, played on fears about immigrants and crime in what seemed to be right out of the Trump playbook. In the exit polls, it showed that only 12% of the electorate was moved by that issue or cared about that issue or voted based on that issue. Not surprisingly, Gillespie won that group overwhelmingly, but only 12%. So uh, if you look at the issue that motivated Northam voters, 39% said healthcare was the number one issue, and he won that by a gargantuan margin. So the point here is the reason you run on these red meat, hot button social issue type or, or cultural issues is to increase that share to a large enough portion of the electorate so that you can take advantage of your existing advantage in that topic area. And the fact that only 12% cared about the immigration question for Gillespie means that it's not a push button type thing or that all you're doing is exciting your base, you're not pulling in people to vote on that, which is what people, when they were criticizing Northam at the end, they were saying, oh, he came out and said he would not support sanctuary cities. He's really, you know, he must be on the run on this issue. Gillespie's, you know, put him on the defensive, which suggested a larger portion of the electorate was going to base their vote or base their feeling about him in some measure on this question about crime and immigration. There was one quite demoralizing aspect of Tuesday night for Democrats, which was that Democrats dominated the election in Virginia. And I think Northam's going to win by nine points. They are going to either going to have half the legislature or maybe a one seat majority in the state legislature. And the reason for this is that the distribution of votes is not fair, essentially, because Virginia is a gerrymandered state and the state legislative districts are gerrymandered. So even though Democrats won many more votes, they're not going to end up with much more representation in the legislature. This is lost because they're gaining back 16 or 17 seats. So it seems like a huge win. But given the scale of their victory, they actually ought to control a clear majority of that legislature. 
Emily, my fear about this election is that Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy is going to look at it and say, look, the voters went to the ballot box. They flipped the Virginia legislature. Why do we need uh, these kind of gerrymandering interventions that the people in Wisconsin are proposing? The system is working. Voters are turning out. They're galvanized. And and they flipped the legislature, even though the legislature should have been flipped much more than it than it may end up being. Right. Except the last thing you said is so important and relatively easy to see that I feel like let's give Justice Kennedy some credit and his clerk some credit. (laughs) Because, you know, look, when you I was looking at this last night, when you look at some of the tests for measuring the degree of gerrymandering, in particular, this efficiency gap that has gotten attention in the Wisconsin case, which is the one before the Supreme Court, the Virginia House of Delegates scores super high. It has a a big efficiency gap, which means that um, the votes have been distributed in the way you say to give Republicans a big advantage. And so the second sentence is also what you said, which is that even in a wave election, the Democrats are barely taking control or they're not going to have control. And that's exactly the same kind of scenario we've seen play out in the last three elections in Wisconsin since the 2011 gerrymandering there. The problem is we don't have any kind of right uh, for proportional representation in the Constitution. And the Supreme Court has made it clear in the past they don't think that a simple measure of proportional representation is what the Constitution guarantees. However, if you see a scenario in which in election after election, a party entrenches itself and the other party, even in a wave election, can't easily take back control, that seems like exactly the kind of problem the Supreme Court should allow lower courts to referee if they're going to open the door to a claim for political gerrymandering, um, which, you know, to date, we, we haven't had those kinds of court rulings that have actually allowed that kind of claim to win. One final question, John, the impact of the election on the tax bill that is now being considered in the House and Senate. So one theory is this makes it a harder bill to pass because suburban House members from particularly from California, New York, New Jersey are going to be terrified of doing something which could hurt their constituents, which a which some of the theory is that this tax bill would really hurt certain kinds of voters in those areas. Theory number two is this is just lights a fire under Republicans in the House and Senate to do something, anything that looks like legislative action so that they appear to be not simply intransigent do-nothings. Which theory do you subscribe to? Well, I think because of the diversity of representation, I think both can be true. So again, you have more, you have more freneticism in the system. Um, you have on the one hand, the leaders and everybody saying, we got to do this, we got to do this so that we can, when people say try and tie Donald Trump to our candidates, we can say, look, I vote with him when I support him and I don't when I don't and I got you a tax cut. If they can't say that second part, then they've got nothing to give their supporters and they don't have a very good answer for those who are disappointed with the president for whatever reason. But I think if you're in a suburban district, it was going to be life was going to be tough anyway. And there are other bad votes as a part of this tax bill as well. In other words, it's the the, the one that's um, a tough vote for anybody in a in one of those uh high tax states, uh, that's one problem. But the other is that, you know, if you ever talked about the debt and deficit as a candidate, this has huge impacts there. The distribution tables for middle class tax cuts, depending on which version you believe, the promise that everybody's going to get a middle class tax cut is not um, true for certain people. And so there's other bad stuff about this. So I think this makes it harder. And finally, because the president wants a win, because he he, everybody's telling everybody's saying that uh, this was a huge rebuke to him. Uh, he's going to start putting his foot on the gas. And we have not yet seen a legislative uh, event where more of his attention has improved the prospects <laughs> for the legislation. OK, let's leave it there. This episode of the GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family. Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating 
your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an aura frame, and I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Slate Plus subscribers, speaking of taxes, Slate Plus members, I should say, we're going to have a tax special in Slate Plus today. Our Slate Plus topic is going to be what new taxes should the U.S. have? It's a segment designed to horrify libertarian listeners and delight the tax and spend liberals among you. Uh, But we're going to come up with taxes that uh, we should consider having rather than perhaps some of the taxes we do have. If you would like to be a Slate Plus member and get this and other uh, bonus segments, you should go to slate.com slash GabFest Plus to sign up. It is 366 days since Election Day 2016, one of the most surprising days in our collective lifetime. In my own remembered life, there are three days that fundamentally changed how I experienced the world. One was December 2nd, 2000, which was when my first child was born. The other was 9-11. And the third was, at least so far, was Trump's victory on November 8th, 2016. I went to bed that night, I remember, very, very anxious and somewhat depressed, um, but partly because of temperament and partly because of sort of the unearned luxury of being healthy and white and uh, prosperous. Uh, I woke up and told myself, well, it will not be that bad. It's not going to be that bad. Uh, So a year later, is it that bad? (laughs) What has gone better or worse than we expected? Is the country as a whole better or worse off than we expected it would be a year ago? Emily, like, how how do you feel? Obviously, I, I think... If I know you, you think the country is worse off than it was a year ago, but is it worse off than you expected it would be? Well, we're not at war and the economy is humming along. So those are like really important, basic fundamentals for the country, right? Um, I mean, I think if you were someone who worried that Donald Trump was going to blow through a lot of the norms of government and give us like serious rattling to some basics of our constitutional structure. All that stuff has happened on a kind of daily basis in a way that, you know, it's very hard to give enough attention to. However, you know, in my view, the thing that has like gotten me the most agitated, probably, I don't know, the most one of the things has been like concern about the kind of basics of the rule of law holding and um The idea that the president is subject to the law and that the Mueller investigation is going to be allowed to proceed. And and that has continued. Right. I mean, Trump has um, rattled a saber at Mueller. There's been talk of firing him at various points. Trump's been enraged at Jeff Sessions for accusing himself from the investigation. And Sessions has said that he regrets having done that. But Sessions did it and he's still there. I mean, maybe only because. Trump wouldn't be able to figure out how to get a new attorney general confirmed. I don't know. But as long as that stays there, I feel like the a really important kind of basic part of our constitutional structure as it's evolved, especially since um, the Nixon investigations and Nixon's resignation, that has held. And that, I think, is, you know, it's really important. We need to, like, keep watching it. But as long as that's in place, I guess my deepest fears about the toppling of, you know, really important structural aspects of the government have not been realized. And well, don't forget, Emily, just in that vein, though, there's a whole other one which emerged yesterday, which is the thought that the president or the DOJ may be pressuring AT&T to get rid of CNN as part of the approval of any deal for AT&T to purchase Time Warner, which is a, yes. a, a fairly <laughs> other an, an, another kind of violation of a norm and an intervention and process that is fairly shocking if true. We don't know if it's true. It may not well, at all be true. 
Yeah, and it's also complicated. I just don't know enough about that merger and how other administrations might have been expected to respond to it in the world of antitrust. I just haven't read enough about it yet. But yeah, I mean, on its face, that could be like one more serious mark. We'll 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 see. I mean, with all of this, like it's still pretty early on. And there's also such a gap between what the president says in tweets, which is like really norm busting and, you know, corrosive to the rule of law, etc. And then to some degree, what he actually does, at least in the realm we've just been talking about. I mean, the, the other thing I feel like is really important to bring up here is that while Congress has not yet passed a major piece of legislation, you know, in the kind of Trump agenda, given the failure of health care, we don't know what's going to happen with taxes. It is still true that some of the federal agencies are marching on and doing like serious work. I mean, the claim that Trump really has accomplished a lot is true if you are looking at it through the lens of the EPA or the Department of Homeland Security um, or, you know, the Department of Education. There's just a lot of regulatory success for the Trump administration. John, what's your cut on in what ways do you think the country is differently off than you expected it was going to be back in November? Um, I would have expected um, at least some fibrillation in the market. Some people see the success of the jobs numbers and the stock market and say, well, of course, they don't, you know, they like the fact that he's slashing regulations and wants a big tax cut for corporations. And so what's not to like? But Businesses are kind of risk averse and and saber rattling with North Korea uh, and just the unpredictability of the Trump presidency, I thought would have had there would have been some moment where you would have had some economic moment of jitters just for the fact that the president is, by his own admission, sowing chaos in order to achieve what he wants. So the, the fact that there was no signal other than really constant basically approving signals from the market. Um, now, even if you argue and you have a strong case to that the economy is essentially moving along on the trajectory that it was on at the end of the Obama administration, the fact that the despite the incredibly negative coverage and the fact that his approval ratings at 37.5 and all the other things that Donald Trump has done um, hasn't gotten in the way of that trajectory is a, is a surprising for me. I think you could argue based on what we were talking about with the Democrats that Donald Trump is, and obviously you don't want to take this too far, but he has reinvigorated the Democratic Party in a way that is obviously quite robust. Now, there are a lot of arguments still to be hashed out in the Democratic Party, but they had to be hashed out regardless. Um, right. And, and then the final thing I guess I would say is that the the real challenge, um, and this is touching on my chatter a little bit, but there's a professor, Paul Light, at New York University who has studied the kind of failures of government over the course of time and going through back to the Bush and um, Obama years. And the challenge in our government has been not just um, the failures in decisions that presidents have made, but the failures of omission, the failures to put policies in place that deal with long-term challenges. And Francis Fukuyama has this idea of a vetoocracy where the, the minority can basically veto any action on anything to thwart the progress on the left or right. Solving that break in government and solving the partisanship that um, locks up Congress and makes it a weak shell of what the framers wanted is a long-term project that people got to get started working on. We're nowhere near that happening. And every day that that doesn't happen, every day that doesn't get improved is a day that long-term problems are not being addressed. And by addressed, I don't mean uh, your preferred solution. I mean that it's even being talked about or having a, the conversation is happening or that somebody's putting forward legislation that might have a chance of going through and becoming something. And the number of government failures, according to Light's research, has increased over time because of this lack of um, forethought, uh, even by government standards. That's yeah. not getting any better. Um, That's a really and good uh, point. as I say, every day is a day that problems can grow. Yeah, I want to dig into that just in my answer to this question as well, which is that so I've I've been surprised at how completely incompetent both he and his people have turned out to be. The level of chaos and lack of foresight is pretty astonishing. And I think one of the results of that is that they're further discrediting the idea of government as an effective actor 
So the bureaucracy is crippled. We see this in the State Department, which basically doesn't have anybody working there. The best people are being driven out. The duties of government are being performed poorly. I am similarly surprised at how incredibly ineffective Congress has been at its job, how astonishingly poor Congress has been at doing anything. So some of it is the failure to pass a, a health care bill, but the Russia investigations have been flaccid. Every legislative element that has come up has been mishandled. I think we're headed for another December funding crisis, if I remember correctly, because they, they've botched that. And the combination of the Trump Trumpian incompetence and congressional lassitude has, I think, brings us back to the, the problem that Jonathan Rauch has been so good about laying out, which is that we're increasing the number of people in this country who have no faith and no belief, and justifiably so, it seems, that government can do anything and that, that politics is, is a legitimate profession that can accomplish anything. And we have accelerated. Part of this is norm busting that you identify, Emily, but part of it is just a general sense that politics is not legitimate. It's not a thing that people should do. It doesn't work. Trump himself both preaches that and then he practices it. And he has exaggerated it and increased it. And then there's a, and actually just to continue on that point, I think there's another element, which is that there's this huge amount of presidential and corruption and also corruption within the administration. We've seen this amazing stuff with Wilbur Ross, the secretary of commerce, who apparently has been doing all these shipping deals, even as he's been secretary of commerce, as well as lying about how much money he has. But there's no one's being held to account about any of that stuff either. And so there's, there's also the sense that the system isn't even effective at self-policing and can't hold the president or his people to account for their wrongdoing of their lives. And so to me that what's so demoralizing about this past year is not necessarily that the policy, I mean, I think the policies they pursued have been policies I disagree with, but um, like that's their right as an administration to do that. So that's fine. And the fact that the country hasn't um, gone to war is good. I like that. And that the economy hasn't cratered. But this degradation of politics and political action has me incredibly worried. And John, I think that Paul Light example you just cited is sort of the, the evidence you just cited there is, is reinforces that, which is that politics has become incapable of addressing and solving problems. And Trump has accelerated that. And yet, when, you know, you think about the conversation we just had about a kind of reinvigoration of Democrats or anyone who feels like they want to address this in politics, it does seem like the system allows for a response to all of this, right? That, like, you can become more cynical and turn off or you can, like, roll up your sleeves. And there's been a lot of sleeve rolling up in the last year. Yeah, although... And I, I'm look. I'm glad. I'm glad to see Ralph Northam elected governor. Uh, I'm, you know, I have friends who are running for office and other people I admire and respect and think they'll they would do a good job. But I'm continue to be sort of surprised by the lack of a cogent Democratic plan that isn't Trump. I don't see what it is. I see that people are excited. They're they're you know they're glad to be part of the resistance and they are running. But I don't know. I don't see what the affirmative message is that that's coming out of of the left that is now galvanized by politics. It just seems to be not Trump. I think that's fair. I mean, there are some you can see some of the debates like over healthcare, single payer versus the kind of Medicaid expansion bill that we saw uh, succeed in Maine this week. Like there are specific issues, but I don't think that you're seeing yet like a really hammered out message about addressing inequality and um, the kind of social optimistic kinds of messaging that the Democrats presumably need, but that feel like they're realer than like stronger together. And some of the other slogans from the Clinton administration that felt at least to me like they fell flat. John, why do you think President Trump, who in his his acceptance speech of uh, when his victory speech on election, I talked about being a president for everyone come together as one united people. Why didn't they bother? Why is no one bothered? I mean, that's one of the other things that's yeah. so troubling and sad about the last year is how much more divided the country feels. It's it's true. One thing that we're we're witnessing at the moment is our first. Well, I don't know if it's first, but 
<laughs> let's take the, the dodge uh, that we use in these instances, which is the first in the modern era where you have a president who is, um, who is a purely partisan president. The rise of partisan politics in the presidency has been increasing since 1980 in, for a variety of reasons. But the idea of the president who could build a coalition from members of both parties, kind of fly above the party uh, fights – build a coalition and pass legislation has been declining. It is now, um, the president has only in a couple of instances, even nodded towards the rhetorical idea of all, let's all come together. I mean, it used to be that presidents would nod to that all the time and then do what they wanted. Now he doesn't even nod to it. And I think that what this is, is it's the next step in the vast partisan split that we see that is both, uh, creates our political structure in Congress and the White House and then is fed by it. But we now have on the Pew Research work that came out in October, we now have the largest partisan split on a series of 10 issues that they have measured since 1994. So across a range of issues about race and race and justice and business and equity and justice and uh, Democrats and Republicans are 36 points apart. Wait, is, so, it the, is it largest since 1994 or they only started in 1994? They started in 94. Oh, so it's the largest, so the largest they've ever measured. Yes, largest they've ever measured, and they started in 1994. So that manifests itself in many different ways. The median Democrat, so Democrats are becoming more liberal, conservative Republicans are becoming more conservative. The median Democrat and median Republican are as far apart as they ever have been. The views of a president you had in Eisenhower's first year, 56% of Democrats liked him. Uh, 8% of Democrats like Donald Trump now. 23% of Republicans liked Obama in his first year. So you have honeymoons don't exist anymore. The incentives for lawmakers, of course, we've talked about this a million times before, but when Reagan and, and Nixon were elected, half of the senators from the states they won were Democrats. So those Democratic senators had a reason to bargain with or, or uh, make deals with the president because they knew a lot of their constituents had voted for him for president. Now we have a situation in which basically states vote for president and senator uh, in the same form. And so uh, nobody wants to give a victory to the president. You know, and Mitch McConnell can say that his that his goal in life is making sure Barack Obama is a one term president. And this will be my final point, but the efforts to bridge the gap if you were a president trying to bridge the gap, you would seek some common view among the electorate about kind of basic things. How, what's the role of government in, in American life? Is healthcare a right? Are African-Americans disadvantaged by the system? On those basic questions, Democrats and Republicans are as far apart as they ever have been. And so if you're a president trying to make a, a bridge between the two, you've got to span an even further territory than you ever had before, which makes it just very hard for any president to do it. And so you could imagine, and I think we're seeing a president basically decide, why bother? I'm just going to run it, stay with my team, keep my team energized, follow a governing strategy that's like the one the president followed to get elected and see if that's successful. And the, the, the extension of that is a campaign in 2018 where you purge people from the ranks who are not at the furthest end of the ideological spectrum as you've defined it. And so you basically try to run up your team so that you can uh, not have to bother with building bridges. The problem with that is twofold. One, you can have a huge backlash like have, we saw in, uh, on Tuesday. And two, you create divisions in the country that are big and violent and irreconcilable and operate not just at the national political level, but in people's daily lives as this uh, split and the exacerbation of the splits, because you have to keep the splits exacerbated to try to build up your team through poking at the NFL and uh, all kinds of other things. That creates a constant sense of uh, kind of venom and unhappiness. And that's obviously horrible for a country. Can I just add to that my sort of pile on my fears, which is that um, the kind of split you're talking about, John, which and I think teams like increasingly feel to me like the right metaphor in a way that's alarming, because once you pick a team, you like to stick to your team. It's geographic, right? I mean, one of the things we're seeing illustrated by this tax bill is that when you have states where you don't have members of the other party, like there, there are no Republican senators from blue states to exaggerate only slightly. And so then like, 
the Republican Senate tax bill is sticking it to the blue states because there's no electoral cost in the Senate to doing that. Now, if that's not true in the House, who knows what will pass. But just seeing that happen, that kind of like geographic punishment is that's got to be a bad thing for us. And then the other element to me is the failure of the media, in particular, the way that Fox and other right wing news outlets are just supplying a different set of information and facts and headlines every day. And so if you live in a part of the country where everyone's watching Fox News, you're just like walking around with a different idea about literally what is happening than people who are um, watching and listening to other media outlets. Yeah. Although what's weird about that all, though, Emily, is that even when you look at the numbers, it's only 40 percent of people are are you know, 37.5% like this president. And it's really, you know, 40% of people who are sort of conservatives and fall on that. And so it's, it's odd that that 40% should still be so able to dominate. Oh, but go back to your gerrymandering point. Yeah. Plus the composition well, of the yes, Senate sure, doesn't sure, seem yeah. so odd. Right. Plus the intensity, you know, the national number may be 37.5, but if all those people are participating in the process, then they have an outsized influence in the in the electoral process because half the country doesn't vote. So one of the the things that I actually think is is also creeping up on us and that this last it's been creeping us up on us for years. But this last year has multiplied, magnified for a century. The American ideal, our form of government, our kind of approach to free markets, our moral force in debate, our growing of a strong middle class, our internationalist open approach to the world has been a defining mark of the United States. And it's also been uh, how we meet the world. And we've always been able to fend off these kind of countervailing forces. We fended off, obviously, Nazism and fascism. We fended off communism. But I think that the rise of the technocratic authoritarian China and countries aligned to, to China is going to defeat us because we have squandered those advantages that we've had. We have lost the goodwill. We've lost the global faith that our political system works. We've lost the trust in us in a, as a partner. And this is not all Trump's doing. It's been things that have been sliding along for a while. We've lost belief that we're going to be for open trade and open borders and globalism and thus that we're a reliable economic partner. But Trump has massively accelerated that. And that's that's disturbing, not just for us as Americans, but for the world to have the moral beacon and the kind of central guidepost of global policy suddenly not be there anymore is a problem. And it does mean that China in particular is going to lead the world in a different direction and the, and the world structures and the organization is going to be different than it has been for the last century and in probably in ways that we don't like. Well, that's bleak. I'm all for bleak, man. <laughs> I, bleak, can I just say one other thing? Year. Is that the, the final point here is that there are a lot of people who uh, put their faith in the president, still have lots of faith in the president, um, who are not the uh, partisan combatants that you see in social media, and who think that the press and the elites are just out to get the president. And they are... You know, let's say that the liberal dream comes through and the president is trounced and uh, and discredited and, you know, uh, hooray for his opponents. It's going to leave a lot of people who who had faith in him and who thought basically that the entire political, the elite structure as demonstrated by the press, but it, with all kinds of other, you know, university professors and um, special interests, um, all aligned to basically make it impossible for him to succeed. And so that only drives the split wider yep. um, and, and, and creates uh, a lot, I think a lot of dangerous reactionary forces in, in itself as well. So yep. um, that worries me too. Yep. Yep. Yeah, that's totally a good point. All right. So John outbleaked me. Let's leave it there in a bleaker spot. Congress just heard from Facebook, Google, and Twitter executives about their knowledge of and response to Russian meddling in the 2016 election. We learned about several astonishing episodes. The most amazing one to me was when two imaginary groups confected into being by Russian trolls, each of which had a social media presence, managed to get people out on the streets 
in Texas for rallies in opposition to each other. So these two non-existent groups, which managed to gin up online followings, got some of those people who were following them online to show up on the streets and then essentially rumble with each other. So the fake social media created a real conflict. On another occasion, another Russian manufactured group managed to turn out hundreds or possibly even thousands of people for an anti-Trump protest in New York City. The Russian online meddling appears to have been very flexible, very clever, very chaotic. It didn't seem to be necessarily seeking any particular end. It wasn't necessarily seeking Trump's election um, from sort of my reading of it. it. What it was seeking was to sow discord and mistrust. And by any measure, it was a fantastic success. It was probably one of the most successful political campaigns and espionage campaigns and disruption campaigns in history would be my my conclusion based on what I've read so far. Emily, what is it that we learned from the hearings about, in particular, what did we learn about how our big tech companies are, are grappling with this or not? I mean, I was just so not surprised, but disappointed with this response. I mean, first of all, I do think that sending your lawyer instead of coming yourself is like a big thumbing of your nose at Congress and demonstrates that you're not really taking this seriously. And, you know, second of all, we're seeing the tech companies try to get away with essentially as little accountability and certainly as little regulation as possible. They're saying that they're looking into this, that they want to have a better understanding. They did hire a bunch more actual human beings to monitor their content with regard to political ads. And I do think hiring human beings is like a huge part of this. When I was reporting, particularly on Facebook, for my book about bullying, there was a huge resistance to hiring lots of people to search through content and respond to complaints. It just doesn't go with the Silicon Valley mentality. You're supposed to find a nice, clean algorithm that's going to fix everything for you. I don't think that this problem is one that the algorithm is going to help us with very much. In fact, the sort of algorithmic way of paying for ads and then targeting them is, is a lot of the problem here. You know, to me, it just looks like Congress has got to step in here. We have this huge domain of political advertising that is now totally. Hang on a second. We have this unregulated, huge vat of political advertising that we have no idea where it's coming from. uh, From it gets served up as if it was just regular content. If it was on the airwaves, we would never put up with this. We would have a message at the end of each ad, at least saying where it's coming from. And the idea that because it's online for this like. Like reason that Google came up with having to do with character limits that has nothing to do with the modern internet, it just seems like insane to me. But, and but, what? Why are you like apoplectic at the idea that there's anything Congress can do? Why can't they regulate that? What would? They, what should they regulate? I mean, they should. What they should, should they regulate do? Literally. Spending. They should literally figure out how to regulate spending on political advertising, in particular by foreign agents. Since I mean, this is an amazing fact that the Russian, <laughs> the Russian intrusion into our election on Facebook was paid for with rubles. Like that, it that's not obviously like they can switch to dollars the next time, but it is incredible that that happened and didn't raise any alarm bells. And they should figure out how to have political advertising clearly identified um, on social media and and then how to regulate it the same as we would for advertising in any other uh, forum. But a lot of... Okay. My indignation is not... That was slightly mock indignation. (laughs) But it's... A lot of this isn't political advertising. This was sort of groups being organized. This is this is like ostensibly grassroots entities that are formed, you know, Black Matters USA or United Muslims of America or or whatever, you know, Triumph over Texas. And 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 these are kind of ostensibly grassroots organizations. They're not political advertising. They're they're social organizations. And is that something where is the problem that these things that are created were false? Is it that they were created by Russians? Is it that they that they were untrue? They were lying about their origins. I, I mean, I don't know. I don't yeah, think this is. Poli- I don't think this is political they... advertising, though. I don't well, think. It's, it's... I think it's. I think it's no, no, don't social disruption. 
Well, right. But don't give up. They're like different buckets, right? So the political advertising was also there and we should regulate it. And then in addition, what you were just talking about, these like fake accounts that are spreading dissension and, you know, in Texas, getting people to actually like show up on both sides of a ginned up protest. Those clearly violate Facebook's terms of surface where you're supposed to like have a real name culture and be who you say you are. And so then it becomes a question of, well, does this company that claims to be policing in exactly this area, does it enforce its own rules? Trickier on Twitter. And, and then that, you can, yeah, sorry. Is that, that question, Emily, a question for consumers to penalize the company on that basis and just take their business elsewhere? Or is that something where where there's any kind of government stepping in saying, these, these are your terms of service, you're not living up to them. And because there's a public cost to this, we're going to step in. Well, that's a good question. I mean, the first option, let's take our business elsewhere, is one that, like, personally, I am drawn to. Um, and I've been feeling this way for years because of the work I did on bullying and the extent to which it seemed to me that Facebook in particular, but also Twitter and these some of these other platforms are just like really falling down on their own claims of regulating this content, right? They don't claim to be a public square where anything goes. They claim to be like the shopping mall where they have their own content speech police, but then they don't want to be held to the standard of a media company. And so they sort of like wiggle out of any real responsibility. So yes, we could take our business elsewhere. You know, the more, I suppose, radical or at least like interventionist answer is the one Tim Wu, a Columbia law professor, has been arguing for lately, which is that these social media companies should really be treated as like public utilities, almost like they should be run for the public benefit. They should not be able to just like reap enormous, enormous profits out of advertising profits, by the way, that are stripping other media outlets of their ad dollars. And all while this is going on, um, all of these things that are not serving the public interest. I'm not saying that's going to happen anytime soon, but I see why Tim is making that argument. Yeah, no, I think that's there's a it is they are much more like utilities. What's happened with Facebook, to its own, I think, surprise, has become the biggest conduit of information and communication on the planet. And it's, obviously, it's very happy about it. But it does. But they're it in does, denial about right, the implications. Yeah, right. They're in right? denial about the implications. It's hard. It's hard because they, you know, they just want to be, they're just, they just want to be uh, what they want to be. They don't want to have to be responsible for all of that. I mean, they this is, be, this goes right. to one of their great, the gross hypocrisies, which is like, they say, oh, there's no ad evidence these ads did anything. But the, so they say that there's no evidence these ads did anything. They didn't sway the election. But at the same time, they're telling all those people who are advertising on Facebook, you should really advertise on Facebook because this is the most effective way to reach people in the world. So, so if it's Coca-Cola that wants to advertise on Facebook, they're like, ads on Facebook are great. But if it's Russian trolls, they're like, oh, these we don't think this affects people at all. I mean, they're 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 totally hypocritical about it. Yes, I agree. Can I add one more thing, which is that it's reports of like these enormous just boatloads of you know, suspect money, in particular lately from the Saudis that we've learned about that are in the coffers of these companies. Like, what do we think about that? The idea that, like, they don't want to comment on, you know, the recent, like, weird corruption purge in Saudi Arabia. There's just a way in which, because they're so huge, they're now implicated in these ways that seem quite insidious in all kinds of national and international affairs. Let me go back to the Arab Spring. There was all kinds of social media action and social media meddling that the United States encouraged to create democratic or people, forces within the United States encouraged to create democratic activity within elections in Egypt, for example. To the Egyptian government, that sure looked like meddling. That sure looked like the you know American meddling in their internal affairs. What's the difference between what that, what American democratic activists were doing in 2011 and what Russian state-backed actors are doing in 2016? Uh, there's not a huge distinction. I mean, one distinction obviously would be, well, no, there's not. I mean, the Russians are meddling in the furtherance of an idea, which is the idea of Russia. And so they believe uh, that that's furthered by that meddling. You know, we would, of course, argue that what we were fighting for is a universal set of principles that all people should be should have available to them, which is freedom, liberty, and uh, sort of fighting against uh, thuggish totalitarianism. But I think as a national security matter, 
and this is where it gets back to Facebook, is that countries have to be aware that this kind of, um, this is basically espionage that other countries that we're going to, uh, that are going to do it. And it's, we sometimes do it with our own allies. And so then the question is, what role does the federal government get involved in these social media networks on those grounds? And how do they get involved? Um, and how do they retaliate? And somebody suggested, it was Mitch McConnell, suggested that Facebook and Twitter essentially be allowed to engage in or be encouraged to engage in or be used as conduits for uh, retaliatory attacks against the Russians in the same sphere. So, you know, create our own um, destabilization of Russia, which I'm sure we're doing, by the way, through Russian social media or Russian Facebook. Well, what was particularly weird about what McConnell said, I mean, first of all, like, that's pretty sinister, um, the idea of using private companies to retaliate in that way. And also McConnell was saying it while he was also expressing doubt about regulating political advertising or other regulation of these social media companies. So it just seemed like wrongheaded in two dimensions. My proposal, I don't exactly know how this would be carried out, is that any post on Twitter or Facebook or or even a Google ad, you could have a feature which f- identified the country of origin of the person creating it. It would register. So so obviously you would like real names. I mean, you'd like real names, but but at least the IP address that created this thing. Um, but I'm sure maybe they'd get around that by then creating yeah, IP addresses. Yeah, they would addresses totally and- get around that. They just have like IP addresses that pinged through like Antarctica or something. Yeah, and then we know about all the fucking Antarctic meddling in our election. <laughs> they ping through Kentucky. I don't know. I don't have a lot of faith in that. All the Kentucky that meddling. Like... <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, I, yeah, that was nice that was, try. That was feeble. We need something more dramatic than that. That was feeble. Yeah. Okay, let's go to cocktail chatter. When you're desperately trying to come up for a solution to end Russian meddling in your drink making, Emily Bazelon, what will you be chattering about? I learned in the past week about this really interesting project called the Graphic Advocacy Project, um, founded by a lawyer named Hallie J. Pope. And what they are doing is trying to create, like, use graphics, comic strips, but other, you know, art illustrations as a way of making it easier to understand all the complicated um, legal issues that people try to sort out on their own. So, for example, I've been trying in the last month or two to help a family in Connecticut with some guardianship issues. And every time I go online and, and read about guardianship, like I can figure it out sort of, but I'm never really sure I'm right. A lot of the language is like unnecessarily complicated and and like also um, separate problem, like unnecessarily antagonistic, I would argue. But in any case, it hasn't been easy to sort out. And like, I'm a person who went to law school, it should be simpler. So I just love this idea of using visual imagery as a way of just having regular people be able to understand how things like guardianships or divorce or trusts and wills, these sort of basic things in which people often end up representing themselves. And this is part of a larger movement that's gone on for decades to provide easy to use, better written materials. So in addition to the issue of people having to represent themselves and how to help them do that with visual materials, um, I was uh, arguing that it's time to redesign Supreme Court opinions, that when they come down, they have this um, syllabus at the top, which is supposed to be a summary of the main points. But it's just not easy to read or understand. It's not clear what the different majorities, the majority opinion, who signed it. You don't get that right at the top. You don't get a really easy to scan holding. And the media is often criticized for getting tricky decisions wrong, um, famously with Bush versus Gore, but also to a degree with one of the Obamacare decisions. And I feel like if someone like Hallie just came in and redesigned the Supreme Court opinion, we could solve that problem. All right. Jean de Carson, what is your chatter? I, um, my chatter is about a piece that Michael Lewis wrote uh, for Vanity Fair on the uh, U.S. Department of Agriculture. It's a wonderful thorough investigation of what the USDA does. And it does lots of things that you might not have known or understood that it does. Uh, but it is a, and and it is a um, examination of what we were talking about earlier, which is what exactly your, your federal government does, 
who the people are who are inside of it. And he has these um, very in-depth interviews with um, the scientists at the USDA and um, the guy who's the head of the food uh, stamps program. And it's written in his charming and lovely way, which means there are lots of little uh, bits of sparkle along the way, which are entertaining. But what I like so much about it is um, I like this idea in general, which is that people should know where all this money is going and what, because it, it's so pervasive, the view that there's just all of this stupidity and waste in government. And of course there is, but there is also a huge, huge group of people who toil in anonymity for their entire lives for basically the purposes of helping other people. And this is just a great treatment of that. And, um, uh, so anyway, it's in um, the most recent Vanity Fair by Michael Lewis, and it's part of a series. I think he's doing. I think he's going from sort of department to department, uh, doing this kind of deep reporting. Uh, so there's more to come. So my chatter uh, is about a book which actually came out in 2011. I'm probably the last person to read it, uh, but I just happened to read it this week, and I loved it. It's called Robopocalypse by Daniel Wilson, and it's a fairly trashy book but it what it imagines is a future in which ai and the robots uh run by that ai become sentient very powerful and uh and the enemy of humans and the war that the ai robots wage against us you know it's not unfamiliar we've seen the terminator many of us have seen the terminator and it's it's ilk um but it's incredibly realistic. It's very well told, very well done, really fun. You can read it in you know in an afternoon or two, and uh, you know scary, scary in a way that say zombies aren't because zombies aren't real. So uh, I really recommend Robopocalypse. Also, I recommend that you check out a podcast that Slate is doing in its Slate Academy uh, feature. Slate Academy is from Extra Podcasts, really deep dive extra podcasts they do and jamel Bowie and rebecca onion are doing a reconstruction series on slate plus academy so they are doing a set of podcasts about reconstruction they did a very popular series of podcasts about slavery for slate plus's academy last year and now they're doing reconstruction those of you who liked our conversation with david blight and are interested in in the topic for reconstruction which is just a big big complicated topic will probably enjoy checking out the slate Academy on Reconstruction from Jamel Bowie and Rebecca Onion. That's our show for today. The Political Gab Fest is produced today by Dan Bloom. Thanks, Dan. Jocelyn is uh, taking a well-deserved break for something. I don't know what, but something important. Our researcher is Izzy Road. You should follow us on Twitter at Slate Gab Fest. For Emily Bazelon and John Dickerson and David Plotz, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. 